Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this year's annual Gresham Lecture by the Lord Mayor. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you, and even more delighted to welcome the Lord Mayor. Um, I'm Roderick Flood. I was Provost of the College, and I'm standing in on this occasion uh, for Sir Richard Evans, who is on leave in the United States at the moment. And it uh, is a great pleasure to be back at Gresham for this kind of occasion. Um, one of the great gifts, I think, of the City of London, and perhaps it helps to explain its longevity, is its ability to invent traditions and then to merge new traditions seamlessly into old traditions. And we at Gresham College are delighted that as we approach the 500th anniversary of the birth of Sir Thomas, we have in recent years invented a new tradition, which is the, that of the uh, Lord Mayor's Lecture. And on this occasion, we have with us the 690th Lord Mayor of the City of London, Alderman Charles Bowman. This evening, he's going to give a short lecture and then participate in a panel discussion um, with uh, three other people who you will see on your programs. And I encourage you to get your questions ready. There will be an opportunity for members of the audience to ask questions. But all I need to say now is once again to welcome the Lord Mayor. Charles Bowman is a senior partner with PricewaterhouseCoopers and also alderman of the Lime Street Ward. He was educated at Uppingham School and Bristol University and has a degree in architecture, uh, perhaps relatively unusual among accountants, which is what he became. And he's been an accountant with Pricewaterhouse for uh, a significant number of years, rising to uh, heights within that important organization uh, before uh, becoming, as you know, an alderman and then uh, now Lord Mayor. So he's particularly well qualified to talk about the topic this evening, trust busting or trust building, how can the city earn trust? And I have great pleasure in asking the Lord Mayor to give his address. Thank you, Roger, very much. And Welcome all to the Guild Hall. On the 28th of March in the year 1210, that is more than 800 years ago, and 21 years after the City of London installed its first Lord Mayor, a debt was paid in the city for 100 marks. It was paid by an Italian named Rubius de Campo, who paid the debt on behalf of one of his compatriots, Vivianus Jordanus, who was on his way back home in Italy. We might be surprised that this type of transaction was able to happen so long ago. After all, a message from London to Italy would have taken four weeks to arrive. But there was really nothing exceptional about Rubius's payment. In fact, we know of thousands of similar payments 
made across Europe at this time. So why do I mention it? Well, the economic historian Avner Greif uses this story to demonstrate two things. For Rubius to pay someone else's debt at such great distance and with the assurance that he would be reimbursed, there must have been, first, a well-functioning market and, second, a well-functioning governance. Rubius and Vivianus could both rely on legal and business frameworks that encourage fairness and reliability. Avner Greif writes, the institutional foundations of these markets were such that merchants trusted agents to handle their affairs abroad, even without contracts. What strikes me about Greif telling this tale is the importance of the word trust. Merchants trusted agents even in 1210, even when 950 miles apart. This afternoon, I will be talking about the role of trust in financial and professional services today. In particular, I will discuss my program as Lord Mayor, the business of trust. I will explain why we need this program, how we have developed it, and how we can ensure that it does make a difference. Our financial markets today look very different from those of Rubius de Campos, but the language of trust can still be found everywhere. We invest in trusts. We regularly solicit advice from trusted professionals. Even the banknotes in our pockets are promises. I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of five pounds. And it isn't just financial services that rely so heavily on trust. Our rule of law requires the public to trust judges to exercise their powers as intended by Parliament. In business, trust is critical. The political scientist Francis Fukuyama writes the following. One of the most important lessons we can learn from an examination of economic life is that a nation's well-being, as well as its ability to compete, is conditioned by a single persuasive cultural characteristics. You've guessed it, the level of trust inherent in a society. Or to give trust a numerical value, Stefan Nack, senior economist at the World Bank, calculated that trust is worth 99.5% of the US economy. Trust is therefore an essential asset for any business. It's hard to win and easy to lose. Trust arrives on foot and leaves on a galloping horse. So we should, should be concerned that the levels of trust in our institutions have dropped significantly 
in recent years. Since the financial crash of 2008, perhaps the moment a horse bolted, notwithstanding some great work by regulators, trust in business has been at a record low. And ever since 2008, trust has become a global issue, reflected by many surprises, now all so familiar. Referenda, election results, including the USA and Catalonia, and the global rise of populism. I would suggest that the digital re revolution has played a part. It has transformed the territory. And let me offer an example. I live in rural Suffolk, in a village of some 450 residents. 15 years ago, a teenager, teenager growing up there would have had a frame of reference that did not extend much further than the kitchen table. His or her grandmother's kitchen table, the school bus, the local pub, open brackets, if allowed, and a bit from the newspaper, TV, and radio. These days, teenagers have access to any amount of information and data in the palms of their hands. They can pass judgment on almost anything and share that judgment with almost anyone across the globe in a nanosecond. Tim and Bob's Get Smart About Scandals report adds that globalization has made the issue of trust even more complex. We are witnessing a paradigm shift. And at a FinTech conference I recently attended in Madrid, one participant made the very insightful comment that this revolution, born from technology, the fourth revolution, is both a digital and a values revolution. And although there have been many positive consequences of this digital revolution, trust has suffered. Every year, the public relations company Edelman performs its trust barometer. The 2017 trust barometer reported the biggest ever drop in global trust in institutions of business, media, NGOs, and government. And the 2018 barometer showed little improvement. Trust in business remains at 43%. The barometer suggested that some of the largest obstacles to trust in business relate to pay, taxation, and transparency. And importantly, nearly seven in 10 respondents said that building public trust is the number one job for CEOs ahead of delivering high-quality products and services. Early in the process to become Lord Mayor, I decided that I would place trust at the centre of my mayoral programme. Why? Well, to start with, I had led the PwC's Building Public Trust programme for the last six years, a programme developed post-Enron with a purpose of shining a spotlight on excellence in corporate reporting. 
But 10 years after the global crisis, this issue of trust remains a top, top priority. The City of London has successfully represented its constituents for more than 1,000 years. Of course, there is the phrase you will hear throughout the city, my word is my bond. In fact, one of the earliest demonstrations of trust is the Lord Mayor's show. Back in 1215, in negotiating its right to appoint its own Lord Mayor, the city was presented with one condition by King John, the need to parade their chosen Lord Mayor to the citizens of London. One of the first examples of public accountability, transparency and trust. And that condition and tradition continues now each and every year in the form of the current Lord Mayor's show. So, with the city's extraordinary ability to convene, to connect, and to create real change, we were confident that this platform was a good platform, an important platform, to explore how we could develop an agenda to help create better business trusted by society. The first step was to conduct research of our own. Supported by former Lord Mayor Sir John Stuttard, our team within the City Corporation began by reviewing the many thousands of man-years of activity that professional bodies, businesses and institutions have put into professional standards, codes of conduct and ethics. Our aim was to coalesce, consolidate and simplify this work into the specific principles and behaviours that underpin trustworthiness. Simultaneously, we spoke to the public about trust. With the support of Britain Thinks, we convened a series of citizens' juries, gathering together members of the public for debate and for discussion. We held citizens' juries in London, Nottingham and Edinburgh. Each was broadly representative of the UK population in terms of age, gender, and background. And it was an immensely productive exercise. When we asked whether there was an issue with trust in financial and professional services, we were met with every emotion, including anger. But as each of the days progressed, the focus moved to the more positive actions that business can take to rebuild trust. Let me read some quotations from the citizens' juries, the messages they wanted to give business. Business, we were told, should have a human response to things happening in people's lives. Business should show humility, admit that it has got things wrong, has made mistakes. And businesses should tell people what you're doing, why you're doing it. It's all, all about transparency and clear communication. Following the individual juries, we drew together representatives from each group for one final session. We wanted to condense the jury's feedback 
as we had done for the codes of conduct review, so that we could draw comparisons between the two strands of our research. The result was extraordinary. The public feedback and the business review reconciled with one another with very, very little amendment. Perhaps this should not be a surprise. As Anthony Selden writes, mutual benefit indeed lies at the heart of trust. From there, we were able to create the five civic principles for building trust and trustworthiness. They are in purple in the center, on the center page spread of the Business of Trust brochure, which you will have in front of you. And you can see just how closely they align with the conclusions of the citizens' juries in yellow on the same said page. The five civic principles and the public view being competence and skills. In short, business must do what they do well. Integrity. Business must do the right thing. Value to society. Business must have a wider purpose. Interests of others. Business must focus on the customer. Clear communication. Business must communicate clearly. We are now using the soft power of the Lord Meralty and the City Corporation to take forward this agenda, recognising that our role is not to mandate nor regulate, but to inspire, to support and to bring together the city, the UK's financial and professional services and, and our international partners. The programme has been met with huge enthusiasm, so much so that we began a series of video interviews on the issues raised. And so far, we've interviewed, amongst others, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, Nicola Sturgeon, two Lord Provosts, many, many senior business leaders. And to reflect the breadth of our activity, the CEO of Australia's National Rugby League, Todd Greenberg, a real icon in Australia, and the all-black legend, Sir John Kerwin. And there are many, many more to come, including the Lord Chief Justice, the Archbishop of Canterbury, various celebrities, and indeed politicians. And I would be delighted, delighted if you too would complete and return the questionnaire included with your copy of today's programme or alternatively, to complete it online via a link that we will share today. And as we continue to share this programme, we continue to learn much more about trust. Briefly, a few key findings so far. Five areas. Leadership models, education, technology, pay and taxes, and as the title of Tim and Bob's report puts it, getting smart about scandals. On leadership, as I mentioned, public expectations of leaders are changing. If we want to improve trust in business, it is crucial, critical, that we empower 
the next generation of business leaders. And that is why we've convened the leaders of, leaders of Tomorrow Network, chosen on the recommendation of nearly 100 CEOs or chairs that I wrote to earlier in the year, giving us direct access to ambitious, forward-looking individuals keen to make a difference in their organizations. Secondly, education. Education at an early stage is also key. So with the City of London Schools, we are developing an education program to include training, training on trust. I've already mentioned the digital re revolution, but keeping abreast of technological developments will be critical to re-earning trust. Technology does not have to be something to undermine trust. Instead, it must be seen as a mechanism to facilitate trust. And this is on the tip, the tip of the tongues of nearly all of the fintech companies I speak with on a regular basis. Fourth, in discussions with the public, the issues of pay and taxes continue, continue to appear. They are not going away and they need to be addressed. And finally, the findings of the Get Smart About Scandals report also require consideration, as well as focusing on financial remuneration as a feature in the scandals that erode trust. The report underlines that we do need to ensure that regulation is both effective and, importantly, efficient. So, in conclusion, what is clear is that there is no single silver bullet and we don't have all the answers. But businesses and business people must take personal responsibility. They must focus on their deeds and their actions rather than the words on the page. And with regard to my role as a key spokesperson and principal ambassador for and on behalf of our wonderful financial and professional services sector, the message that I will be repeating many, many times this year is this. For London to remain the global hub for financial and professional services, then at a national level, we have a responsibility, indeed a duty, to continue to re-earn the trust of society that we are there to serve. And internationally, we must demonstrate that we continue, continue, continue to invest in being the trusted cluster of choice. I and we look forward to the views of the panel and you, the audience, to what business needs to do in helping to create that lasting legacy of better business trusted by society. Thank you very much. Many thanks. Actually, I'm glad that the Lord Mayor started off with an example from the year 1210 AD because I recently found an appropriate item from 568 BC. 
Um, in the Old Testament, the Lord instructs the prophet Jeremiah to buy a piece of land for the temple. And this is duly carried out with two witnesses, signed in duplicate, and a document is actually deposited in the temple for safekeeping. Now, if you're not going to believe the word of a prophet in Israel, what hope is there for the rest of us? It does seem an unfortunate reality that banking and finance seem to have had more than their fair share of troubles in the last 10 years. The Panama and Paradise Papers have done nothing to improve public confidence, and these indicate the existence of a two-tier system in the world of finance. One for those whose fortunes are counted in millions, and another for those who find themselves burdened with student loans, the mortgage, and credit card debt. All these financial arrangements may well have been done in legal form, but it stings when others have to be held to pay rises below the rate of inflation for over a decade. Fraud, scandal, and other misdemeanors have also had an impact on the public mind in both state and private sectors. Such things, of course, have always been with us. London was the home of the South Sea bubble. But are they, in fact, inevitable? Can laws and regulations control or prevent financial malpractice? And how do we not only restore trust, but ensure that it is simply a normal aspect of working life? Here to discuss this topic further and to reflect on the Lord Mayor's words, we have His Honour Judge Nicholas Cook QC from the Central Criminal Court, the Old Bailey, um, Rebecca Aston, Head of Professional Standards at the Chartered Institute for Securities and Investment, the CISI, which incidentally offers a wide range of examinations for people working in finance, reaches out to no fewer than 104 countries, and as a linguist in the family, I'm delighted to say they do exams in more than one language. <laughs> and of course, Alison Cottrell, CEO of the Banking Standards Board, which promotes high standards of behaviour and competence within the banking industry. Now, to start the question and answer session, may I ask our panellists to each give their response to the following question, what is the most important thing that businesses or public institutions can do to earn and to maintain the trust of the public? Who would like to go first? So, the most important thing in maintaining or earning trust, I would say, is to focus not on am I trusted, but am I worthy of trust? So for any organisation, it's focusing on being trustworthy, which I would say for sickness is being honest, being reliable, being competent. Picking up on some of the things we just heard in, in the lecture, do I know what I'm here to do? Do I know what I'm doing? Am I talking about it? Am I doing it well? And do I know how to do it? Now, three quick thoughts on this. First of all, as an organization, make it easy for the people in your organization to actually do the right thing. So are your rewards, are your incentives aligned with what you say your values are? When you encourage people to speak up, do you invite that challenge? When you encourage people to share learning from mistakes, do you admit your own mistakes? You know, it's difficult in groups for people to go against the norm, so make it easy. Don't make it harder to do the right thing than it is to do the wrong thing. Secondly, this is not about what the regulator considers acceptable. This is about what the firm and the people in it consider acceptable. So keep asking the question, not only is it legal, am I complying with the regulation, not only is it legal and is it feasible, but is it the right thing to do? That has to be the check 
each time on every decision in terms of being trust trustworthy. That you can do it doesn't mean you should. And finally, you asked about earning and maintaining the trust of the public. That's not the only constituency. There's also the employees in the organisation. So when the people in your organisation talk about the values in the firm, do they use their leaders, do they use their managers, their influencers, as the example of actually how those values are lived? Because if they're not being cited as the example, those leaders have a problem. Or if the leaders don't know if they're being talked about in that way, the leaders have a problem. If you're going to earn the trust of the public, you have to deserve, first of all, the trust of your employees. Very interesting. Um, so I'm fortunate enough to do quite a lot of um, training on trust and education with young people, um, 16 to 18-year-olds who want to join financial services. And um, we do a bit of an exercise where I ask them, who do you trust and why do you trust them? And um, I've had some refreshingly honest, um, very wide-ranging conversations with these young people, all the way through from trust in God to trust in dogs. Um, and um, I, want, I was reflecting on all of those conversations today um, before the event, and I wanted to share some of the thoughts that these young people had had about maintaining and obtaining trust. Um, some people say, well, you need to know the person in order to trust them. But we have tens, if not hundreds, of interactions every single day which rely on trust in strangers. On my way here, I was running a little bit late, so I uh, cut across the road and the driver slowed down and let me pass. And that was a relationship based on trust. Now, I don't know that person, but that was um, very important. So then we started thinking about, well, um, do we need someone to be qualified? Um, Certainly, we want our doctors, accountants, uh, lawyers, Nicholas, um, to be qualified. Um, but some of our most enduring and trusted relationships are with people who aren't qualified at all for the role. Um, for example, and I'm allowed to say this because my mum is here today, so hopefully I won't get in trouble for saying it, but when I came along as a first child, my mum had not taken a motherhood qualification or a motherhood course, but we muddled through it and we have an enduring, trusting relationship. So qualifications may not be necessary. Um, we all talk, always talk about uh, codes of conduct, codes of ethics. We talk about skills, expertise, brand. And really, these young people aren't that impressed um, with any of those things. Um, and I say, really, what makes you trust someone? And they say, you feel it in your gut. You just know you trust them. Um, and it's very difficult to put a measure on that. But when we drill down in these conversations, um, that feeling in the gut is a feeling that the other party is going to not let us down, that they're going to act in our best interests, um, that they're going to do what they say they're going to do, that their word is their bond. And actually, I think if we take that and say, we're going to put the customer first, we're going to put their interests first, we're not going to let our customers down, that is the core part of um, obtaining and maintaining trust. All of those other things I discussed are very important, and we can't forget about those kind of things. But it is that gut feeling, is this person going to let me down, that I think is the most important part of a trusting relationship. Indeed, thank you. Nicholas. <coughs> what builds trust? Empathy and service, from the point of view of business. Empathy with your customers empathy with the community around you, empathy with your employers. How do you lose it? You leave the derelict site, you create an adverse image for the business or the sector concerned. Service, same set of criteria in reality. Before I turn to crime, 
I used to do retail planning, and in that context, I was interested in what was a brand that had trust and why did it have it. You're interested in that for marketing purposes. All the surveys at the time, perhaps there'll be someone from that corporation, I'll be terribly pleased if they get a name check, indicated that Boots the Chemist were top of the list in terms of public trust in their products and so on. And you could see that it came from empathy. They didn't have to be governed by the pharmaceutical regulator as to what they wanted to do. They provided the service for the chemist that was open when your baby was poorly on a Sunday afternoon. Um, they didn't actually make a huge amount of money out of doing that, but it was enormously valuable to the trust in the brand and the business. What destroys trust? Selfishness, arrogance, and the reverse. Um, if you go back in time when Dr. Savundra of ill fame called his customers peasants on the Frost program, the amount of harm he did uh, to everyone in this room if they're in business was pretty substantial. I could pick other examples. Code of ethics is important. Um, Sir Roger Bannister uh, died only days ago, a uh, famous athlete. What has happened to athletics? Why has it ceased to be what it was? The absence of the acknowledgement of a code of ethics. Value revolution referred to. Problem with that is you get a fractured code of ethics. Final thought on that. Back to 1210 referred to what was the great thing about the merchant in Italy and the merchant here? Government might be poor, King John not doing a very good job. However, code of ethics for the man in Italy and the man in London, very, very similar. Fractured code of ethics, a problem. Um, yes, um, Emil Savundra reminds me rather of the case of Leona Helmsley, the New York hotelier who in 1989 famously said, only the little people pay taxes. And unfortunately, one of the little people overheard her, um, shopped her to the IRS, and she actually went to prison. But that's another story. <laughs> um, time now for the roving microphone and questions from your good selves. Please catch my eye. Make sure you have a microphone. Could you please, please say who you are and if you have any particular affiliation? Gentlemen in the front, please. No, here in the green. Yes, and uh, Mariam, second one there. Thank you. Thank you. Sir. Uh, my name's Alan Taylor. I'm a retired precision engineer. Um, trust, to me, is dependent on um, human virtue. And the thing that's lacking in our society is human virtue. Does anybody, any member of the panel, um, have anything to say how this society can improve prove its virtue, especially integrity. Thank you. Well, that links in very nicely to ethics, doesn't it? Rebecca, would you like to lead on that? It does. That I was going to say, we have a virtue ethicist in the room. Um, I believe Aristotle was the first one to set out uh, 12 key virtues and vices which are on a sliding scale. And um, it is something that I come back to on occasion. Um, Aristotle uh, may be dead but is not forgotten. And I see these virtues being lived out by people that I work with all the time. And sometimes you get it wrong. And um, it's okay to get it wrong. I think that sometimes if you strive too hard for, um, you know, uh, to be virtuous, it can be very intimidating 
and um, you might not be able to, to get there. What Aristotle was actually saying that virtues are a balance between sort of a, a middle path between virtues and vices, um, and that you can walk that middle path and, you know, you might stumble one way or the other uh, at some point during your life. Now, why is that important? And I don't get to talk about it very often with the young people that I work with, but it is something that sort of is an ongoing theme in codes of ethics. We talk about values in codes of ethics. Um, a lot of financial services companies have values. There are some that will remain nameless, which have lifts, which are called um, their you know, company values. Some have them printed in big letters in their, in their receptions. Um, but they're not... Um, if they're just words it doesn't get you very far. You have to be able to understand what those words mean and actually live them out. And that's why I think ethics and training is so important. Because you can say to somebody, act with integrity. If you don't explain what integrity means to them, they're not going to be able to live up to that value. And integrity actually means a lot of different things to different professions as well. You need to explain what it means to that person, which is why, uh, yeah, as I said, education is so important. Nicholas, could you comment, being the legal man, on the question of ethics and regulation and law? Can you actually impose a code of ethics on people? You can't impose a code of ethics on people. Um, you won't often get a judge giving a positive spin on immorality, but it's amorality that's the threat. Um, immorality implies you know what you should be doing, so to speak. Um, I'm not as pessimistic as all that about the existence of human virtue, but I think there is a serious danger in terms of trust in amorality in business. That there has to be an acknowledgement of hopefully a very widely accepted code of ethics for the purpose of business. The regulator and the law, the criminal law, can't impose ethics on someone. Um, it's the same as the situation in relation to hypocrisy, which Rochefoucauld said is the honour that vice play, pays to virtue. You have to know in business what you should be doing, but that's internal, internal to the business, internal to yourself. But we oughtn't, if it's an undertone to the question, be all that pessimistic about human virtue. There is plenty of human virtue out there. The problem is it's all too easy to lose sight of it. But no, we can't impose a code of ethics. It's not something the law can do. We really f reflect what is the commonly acknowledged code of ethics. Thank you. The gentleman... Um, can, I, can I... Can I... Oh, sorry, yes. I did? yes. Just to, to underpin what Rebecca said, I, I, you know, if I had to answer to that, there isn't ever a single silver bullet to it at all. But I think I would pick up on start young, um, and I would go to education too. Um, I mentioned the, you know, we, there's a paradigm shift happening here, technology and all that's happening along, uh, alongside it. But, um, and it's not, you know, if you think about it, trust is not part of and some of these softer skills is not part of a curriculum which is harder edged than I think it was even when I, well that was a long time ago, but when I was at school. Um, and the interesting dynamic is that as part of our uh, sort of national outreach, we, you know, in my travels to Scotland and around, have been engaging with some school children on, on this particular subject. And actually, the simple act of dialogue 
around these five civic principles has been so inspiring. Um, so it's not the answer, but I do think it is an important answer. Indeed. Thank you. Um, Mariam, your client, and then... Uh, yes, hello. My name is Stephen Hine. I've worked for 30 years in responsible and sustainable investing, currently looking for new opportunities. But um, so what I say probably won't be so surprising given what I've done in the past. The Lord Mayor rightly says this is about uh, actions and deeds, not just words and piety, so to speak. I think one of the actions and deeds which a lot of businesses can apply, be it in the financial world, banking, insurance, and particularly investment, is responsible and sustainable investing. And I say that because, not because it's a solely normative issue, but the issues of climate change, water, human rights, etc., the stresses on the planet, are all things which can definitely affect the bottom line of businesses, investors, and particularly pension beneficiaries. So I guess my, my, my comment come question is to say that, to what extent do you think that the more that investors and other uh, actors in the financial community openly adopt sustainable and responsible investing mm -hmm. and promote it in a way that convinces the ordinary public as well as pension beneficiaries, mm -hmm. which I guess are the ordinary public really, um, and, and wider society can help to rebuild trust in the system. Thank you. Um, Alison, would you like to lead on that one? Yeah, I think coming back to this concept of trust, I mean, there's the trust in, in parents and the trust in friends and the trust in people to be doing the right thing generally. And then there is also, I think, in a business context, something which is very specific to that context. So I trust A to do B. You know, I trust my doctor to know what he's doing in terms of medicine. I trust my insurance person to know about insurance, but not necessarily about medicine. Now, the point about the sustainability angle, and indeed about many, um, you know, corporate uh, social responsibility actions and things like that is, absolutely, they can build that relationship. And where a business or an investor is saying, I believe in this, these are my values, this is what I'm here for, this is what I'm doing. Absolutely, the behavior can either um, affirm that or it can be at odds with those values, in which case you destroy the trust. What I would say, however, is that if a business, whether it's an investor, whether it's a business in, their, uh, in other uh, areas, is being, is acting, is talking very sustainably in an environmental sense, but actually in other parts of their business they are not behaving well, then actually it's that core area of business. What am I here for? Am I here to undertake your operation? Am I here to provide your insurance? Am I here to uh, act as a retailer? What am I here to do? Now, if I'm not doing that well and in the interest of the customer, whatever else I'm doing, in the environmental space or whatever, I would say, that's great, but that's not going to help on the trust front. Mm. Um, Rebecca, your organisation runs examinations in a wide variety of countries, some of which don't necessarily have a very good reputation uh, in matters of finance. Um, how do you find this question of differing um, attitudes inside particular cultures, inside particular countries, if you're trying to uh, promote a certain set of values through your business examinations? Um, 
It is a really interesting question. Um, I'm currently in the process of translating um, a lot of our ethics and integrity learning resources into um, Arabic and into Russian. And um, it's not just the content that needs to, you know, word for word translation. We need to ensure that the dilemmas that we're talking about, that the, um, you know, the values that we're setting out um, are appropriate for that country, for that culture, for that region. Um, and we work with experts in those countries. Um, the other thing that is quite fortunate about the CISI is our code of conduct, which I, I did bring with me, um, is nice and short, nice and simple. And it really um, can be boiled down into four words, which are honesty, openness, transparency, and fairness. And those four values tend to be um, internationally recognized, um, especially honesty. Uh, people, a lie is a lie, really, wherever you are in the world. Yes. Um, yes. Something I would interject there, actually, for any of you involved in education the young, the CISI does a very useful handbook based on actual things that went wrong and how they were solved or quite what the situation was. Very much to be recommended to see what's actually been going on on the ground. Um, yes, yeah. just returning to the question, yeah. Yeah. if I could, <laughs> um, could I just stress this, that the most important cohort in my mind for the restoration of trust in business is young people. Yeah. And there is no doubt that the point that the gentleman mentions, a focus on sustainability yeah. as a matter of reality, not perception, they'll see through any fraud, is the greatest contribution that can be made by those businesses which impact on the environment to restoring trust in business. I was going to say exactly the same thing, actually, um, but we're at a slight, I would describe it as a slight tipping point. The sort of sense of the purpose of business has changed. And in, you know, a few years ago, profit maximisation would have been what most shareholders, stakeholders were observant of uh, in need of, but it's a very, very different plane now. And actually, increasingly, because of the growing youth and the expectation of that growing youth, it is for a wider purpose uh, with a significant value to society. And the businesses that put value to society at its core, in my view, will be the ones that sustain themselves for the future. Very interesting. I have a question down here. And, Mariam, you have someone there if you could pass the microphone. If you next, madam. Uh, sir. Andrew Figures. Um, I'm a soldier of, well, retired soldier now, of some years' service. Um, the Lord Mayor made a compelling case for trust in business. And that, I think, was reinforced by the panel. And it was amplified in, with this idea of being considered trustworthy. If it's so obvious that trust is critical to successful business, and those were fine examples, actually, which I had not heard before, um, if it's so critical that trust is essential to uh, business, what is the motivation and where's the balance of advantage in the minds of those who participate in it that causes them to be untrustworthy? It's hard for me as a soldier consider that you would lose the trust of your soldiers, you'd do anything, that you would consider doing anything to lose that trust, because the shame involved in it would be just too great. But I can't see why that doesn't appear 
isn't shown, isn't sensed by those participating in business. So I'm, I haven't nailed this one, and I'd be grateful if you could help me. I think perhaps I'd refer you to um, a useful organisation here called Transparency International, and they recently produced a report called Hiding in Plain Sight, and to some extent I think that illustrates the question. Lord Mayor, would you like to start on that? Um, I thought somebody else might start, but I'm more than, <laughs> I'm more, more than happy. It's a very, very good question. And the, the complexities of human behaviour are, are, well, they are complex. But I'm going to flip it around the other way, if I may, because I think increasingly uh, trust is something that is incredibly difficult to measure. But I think increasingly those businesses that seek to do so, uh, call it whatever you might like to, uh, like to, the financial statements of trust, the profit loss on, on trust, that in itself, those businesses, and I see some now doing it, trying to measure it across their piece, those tend to be the businesses that will find ways in removing core bad behaviour or bad behaviour and weeding out the, the poorer apples within, within, within the, their individual institutions. Yes. When I was training court interpreters many years ago, I was told to watch the judge and follow the pen. I see Nicholas is scribbling some notes, so I'm going to ask him next. Yeah. Well, I suppose it is rather my province, and I've seen a lot of people who've done the sort of things which destroy trust, so I know a little about it. And long ago, I read a book called Lives of the Great Fraudsters, which would answer your question. <laughs> if you want to save the trouble of reading the book, the answer is greed, effectively. Mm. But the thing that might have changed that's affected us in the city and so on is also this breakdown of a common code of ethics as to what is or isn't acceptable and which facilitates greed without you feeling the shame that you think they ought to feel. So I think that is one of the problems and I saw it, I, I can't talk about individual cases, but I saw it in terms of a corruption case where it was perfectly obvious that the defendant, who I'm afraid won't be with us tonight, because that's the outcome of these things, could not understand why his behaviour was wrong. And the illustration he used, which I can do fairly quickly, in evidence is, where I'm from, the postal service is very poor. So you pay the poorly paid postman to deliver your post first. Everybody gets their post. I just get my post first because I pay the postman. What's wrong with this? Which is transferred into facilitating loans in the city and taking a secret commission in exactly the same way. Everybody's loan is going to be dealt with in due course. You pay me, I'll deal with yours quicker. That's a breakdown of moral ethics, which leads to corruption which damages the reputation of the sector concerned. But it's not quite as easy with everyone to identify why that's wrong. And the most dangerous form of corruption is creeping corruption, which corrodes your institution, which I think answers the question as to why they do it, when if they reflected, they wouldn't do it. Uh, Alison, you want to come Yeah, so going back to why if... If the importance of trust and being trustworthy is so evident, why doesn't everybody do it? I mean, I think, first of all, from a business point of view, and echoing there, uh, Nicholas's point, what is the purpose of the business? You know, is the purpose in financial services, say, to help 
your customers, your clients uh, earn money, manage their money better? Or is your purpose to make as much money as possible out of your clients? You know, if you're in that second camp, then actually your time horizons are going to be different. You know, it's a short-term profit motive and all these things. So actually the trust bit doesn't really come into that. It's just can you keep the trust long enough to make money out of them? If, however, we put ourselves in the second business category, uh, which is almost why do good people sometimes end up doing bad and stupid things, even though they didn't intend to in the first place. Any organisation, any group of people is going to have its own complexities and sort of biases. And we know that people may behave very differently in different groups to the way that they would behave on their own as individuals, the way they would behave at home, the way they behave in another group. There is always that tendency of human nature to go with the norm. You know, as everyone says, lots of us want to be leaders, but actually we all secretly want to be followers because we don't want to stand out from the crowd. And when things go a little bit wrong in organizations and coming back to this thing, you know, not just in the fraud, but actually everything can creep and go step by step by step. When things start to move away in the way that an organization does things, from the way that it says it wants to do things, and from the way that it says at the top it wants to do things, do people feel able to say, actually, this doesn't feel right? Or, you know, we say we're focusing on customers, but we could do this better. And if there isn't that ability to speak up and actually call out someone else's mistakes, because we very rarely notice our own mistakes, but we're more likely to notice other people's mistakes. If that is not encouraged and invited and praised and welcomed, then actually you can find yourself going quite a long way out of where you intend to be until something happens and exposes the problem, at which point you then have a, a sort of a ripple effect because then the danger is that people look and say, okay, that business which I trusted, and I did trust it, and it had great ratings and stuff, let me down, and therefore everyone must be doing the same thing because the lack of trust you know, is contagious. Thank you. I'm, I'm coming back to the business, and I wanted to... Um, come back to what the, um, the gentleman from the um, uh, armed forces uh, said. Why do, why do people um, in business, why are they not trustworthy? To me, I, I set up a business uh, 22 years ago, a foreign exchange business, and our, um, we set out to help SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises who were getting a very poor deal on foreign exchange from their banks. So we set out with a, uh, a noble objective, but it was fundamentally common sense for us to be successful as a business, that, that we treated our customers fairly and they trusted us. And this was a, um, a really important part of us being able to build a successful business, um, that, that customers would speak highly of you and they would speak to other people about the uh, experience they had had with your business and you would find that you were taking on new customers actually without having to pay for new customers. Customer acquisition is expensive, but we were getting customers coming to us. Um, and the cost of losing a customer, well, if you made a mistake, admit it, um, put it right, and compensate the customer, bowl them over with, with, with how you treat them, and my goodness, you keep that customer and you get more. So it's absolute economic, commercial common sense to be trustworthy in business, and I think we should try to emphasize that. I'm sorry, that's not really a question. It's well, a I think statement. that was a very useful sorry. statement, but time is getting on. Thank I'd you. just like to fit in uh, one question at the back, if I may, um, Maxine. And... Okay, one down there. Jeff Hayward, Gresham Society. The question of trust, I think, is covered by the law to some extent. You mentioned that we've been discussing fraud, etc. It's, 
in that respect, it's enforcement which is the problem. We have little enforcement over very obvious cases involving the city and financial companies. But my main question is the question of trust by the public in major companies, especially listed companies, where we have this huge differential between average pay and the pay of directors. And that, I feel, is determined by institutions which have our major shareholders in these companies. And that it's in their interest to support these huge increases in directors' pay could we because just take that it, it reflects question? on their own pay. Yeah. Sorry, Jeff, could we take that just as a question about the um, payments made to senior staff in the organisation as opposed to more junior members of staff? Yeah, it's, uh, if anyone is familiar with the Institute of Business Ethics, um, they release research every year into the key um, ethics issues amongst the British um, public um, every single year. And this issue of executive pay and remuneration um, hits the top five issues that the British public feel very strongly about year after year after year. And there are lots of different arguments when I go in and I speak with financial services institutions about why you should have these you know, large pay scales. It's about attracting and retaining talent. It's about rewarding people who have done very well and all of those sort of things. But there is, I, I do still see um, an enduring um, difference in opinion between public and those people working in financial services. And I, I think, again, there is no easy answer. Um, in, to go back to the gentleman's point here about um, motivating people to be, you know, what is the motivation to be untrustworthy? One of the things I've scribbled down here is um, an incentive structure that works for everyone in the business. And when I say everyone in the business, I mean up to board level. And there is a conversation about how you can tie in um, pay and remuneration with ethics, principles, and values. So it's not just the, um, how did I achieve this? Um, you know, what did, it's not just the, what did I achieve? But it's the, how did I achieve this? It's something that is still, I think, needs to be worked on. But it is, I, I see more and more that kind of thing being brought up in conversation. Yes. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm conscious, talking of stained glass windows, that uh, Sir Thomas Gresham is glaring at my back because it's a long-standing Gresham College tradition that we finish at the declared time. I would like to ask Alderman Michael Minelli, who's also an Emeritus Professor and Fellow of Gresham College, to close the proceedings. Michael. My Lord Mayor, uh, Sheriffs, distinguished guests, panelists, ladies and gentlemen. I felt we, we had just got going, uh, <laughs> but on behalf of the provost, the chairman, the council, my fellow professors, the Gresham team and our sponsors, the Mercers and the City of London Corporation, my job is to propose a vote of thanks to close things this, our ninth Lord Mayor's annual Gresham tradition, I think we would call it, is that right? Tonight's event is a highlight, though, and has become such in our college's annual calendar. Our president, the Right Honorable the Lord Mayor, gets to choose an intellectual event of his choice. And as Charles has an intense interest in trust, ethics, and human decency, it is hardly a surprise who chose tonight's topic. Trust is a tough subject. Thomas Fowler in 1869 set out a paradox as follows. Epimenides the Cretan says that all the Cretans are liars. 
but Epimenides is himself a Cretan, therefore he is himself a liar. Or a simpler paradox, you can trust me to cheat you. The city of London, though, has a deep interest in trust. The oldest continuous democracy in the world was founded on Saxon builds, guilds that built trust in commerce, community, and charity. Past reactions to scandals rightly focus on preventing future ones, but too often they only focus on the exact one they faced, fighting the last war or building rifles against many color wolves, but which only kill wolves of specific colors. Past reactions with their rules and regulators sometimes only redistribute the power and money for the next round of exploitation. When direct regulation is essential, markets are frequently at their weakest. The answer to every regulatory failure is another regulation. And guess who's kept in business? As a former scientist, I always say, don't even trust an atom. They make up everything. The report on your chair, Get Smart About Scandals, is not a joke, though. The title refers, I'm afraid, to Mel Brooks's 1960s satirical spy show, Get Smart, the bumbling agent Maxwell Smart works for control and is repeatedly fooled by the same tricks of chaos, the international organization of evil. The catchphrases are, would you believe, I asked you not to tell me that, missed it by that much, sorry about that, chief, and the, the old such and such trick got me again. So how does tonight move us from longer, toward longer-term solutions rather than just repeating these former bungles? Longer-term solutions need to be built around moving people from hunting to farming. By this, I mean that people in the markets have an ethical responsibility to the market itself because it's about long-term harvesting and the future of society. And finding ways of avoiding direct regulation involves getting these individuals to have skin in the game, ranging from financial commitment through professional cultures to criminal liability. Gresham College exemplifies over four centuries of trust. Sir Thomas Gresham back here entrusted the City of London Corporation and the Mercers with his fortune and his eternal soul. The college was established as a result of the 1579 will and in 1597 began to provide free education for those who live and work in the City of London. The Gresham College group of the 1640s became the Royal Society and over the centuries we've had distinguished professors such as Henry Briggs, Christopher Wren, and Robert Hooke. I like to describe us as a Tudor open university. We step forward with new technology and social media. We look backward, having commissioned a groundbreaking biography of Thomas due out at the end of this year. We have 2,000 recorded lectures by the finest minds, an unrivaled global open source treasure trove. Lord Mayor, tonight you have helped Gresham's lecture pot grow. You have given us all, policymakers, regulators, politicians, and businesses, a call to arms about the urgency of building long-term trust and your civic principles to help us. There's little one can add to tonight's event. Brilliant talk, fascinating panel, great chairman, excellent organization, and some freebie giveaways, which isn't too bad. I'd like to perhaps shout across the pond to the U.S. president about our Gresham president, Trump that. So may I ask you to join me in thanking our speaker, panel, and chairman, and the Gresham team.